Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Jennifer Miracle Best has a passion for helping people to understand the intricacies of sexual and gender identity. Although some of her knowledge came from her studies at Central Michigan University and her experience as a member of CMU's Office of Gay and Lesbian Program Speaker Bureau and as the director of the LGBT Resource Center at the University of Georgia, most of her wisdom came from her personal journey to find her own truth. Her time at the University of Georgia, and perhaps even more so, her relationship with her husband, Ethan, had broadened her perspective on gender and caused her to challenge even the most basic, mundane constructions of gender. It is through these experiences, as well as the experiences of her own gender expression and the assumptions people make about her based on it, that she has arrived at this radical game-changer ideal about how to free the world from gender. These days, Jennifer spends her time promoting her book, Divinely Queer, My Journey to Spirituality Through Sexuality, and spreading the message that despite the messages that our society perpetuates about God and religion, that our queerness is absolutely divine. Jennifer, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Um, I am doing really well today. I I know, uh, you know, we mentioned the weather's a little bit crazy, but I kind of am enjoying that it's not so, it's not super hot. We went to the Eastern Market this morning, so it was nice because, uh, wasn't too hot and sunny. I get fried in about five minutes when that happens, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it also wasn't raining. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> oh, I mean, exactly. You know, I mean, I try to, I've been making it a point to get up and, and walk in the morning. And although some mornings it has been pretty steamy or I'm tiptoeing through the, mm-hmm. through the teardrop, raindrops, it's been good. It's been good. And, um, it's just like I think that there's something amazing about nature that connects us to the universe, to something that we're going to talk about uh, later on, the divine, if we yeah. take a moment to sit and see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Absolutely. You know, yeah. 
I was reading your book, and I, you know, I mentioned before, like, there's so many things that, that I can identify with, like, you know, and like I think it's so many in our community do, like, if you start out as a, a and, and because a little girl or a little boy, there are these expectations, you know, oh, although, you know, I, I kind of broke them all, you know, but there were, you talked about the expectation that you were going to find the right guy. You know, mm-hmm. your dad was happy when you met the one who was a man's man. You know, I often talk about how and how you had one person who you could date. My parents had, uh, and homophobia, I mean, like it's not new. They had friends who mm-hmm. had a son who they all, you know, said, was, well, he's a little, quote, unquote, light in the loafers. Mm-hmm. So whenever, and I was like the second child who they considered their less attractive daughter. So whenever he needed somebody to go to an event with him, it was like, Michelle, come on and go. And so, and like, and I know how you were talking about how you had your first um, boyfriend and how your father said that he always thought that that was the safe one. Uh, Mm Yeah. So you said that, you know, at that point in time, like he wasn't interested, you weren't interested. Neither of you clearly had started to, to recognize like, talk about sexuality and stuff, but did you feel that pressure like you've got to be a good girl, you're supposed to date, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to, to want these things? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I always, um, I can't remember if I put it this way in the book, but I, I always kind of talk about how, you know, the expectation growing up seemed to be like you graduate school, you go to college, you get married, you know, you have babies, not necessarily in that order. Like there was this <laughs> kind of social expectation that that's what life was, right? And, um, and so, and, and I was, you know, I talk in the book about how I felt like, I was the kid, like I was a people pleaser. I have been, you know, from the time I was young, I followed the rules, I asked permission, not forgiveness, you know, like, like that's mm-hmm. the kind of person that I've always kind of been. And so, um, you know, absolutely, I felt like the expectation was, you know, when I got into high school, all my friends were dating boys. And then, you know, gradually you heard, you know, your friends would talk about the things they were doing with boys. And um, so, you know, I was dating a boy, but I wasn't doing any of those things with boys and, you know, feeling almost a little bit conflicted because I knew that that was not what my parents expected me to do with boys. But I knew that my friends were doing these things with boys. And so I remember feeling like I wasn't really sure what was going on, you know. So I think from an early, you know, even from an early age in that relationship, I even questioned what was going on because it felt like, well, is there something wrong with me? Because I'm a good girl, so I'm not supposed to initiate any of those kinds of things. But mm-hmm. he, he wasn't either, you know. Um, and, of course, like you said, you know, in retrospect, it feels like that was just how it was supposed to be. I mean, to this day, we are very good friends. We're still in touch. Um, he stood up in our wedding. Um, and so <clears throat> I think that was just how it was meant to be. But certainly I think both he and I, kind of felt that social pressure to, you know, date, date a boy, you know, date a, for me to date a boy because I was a girl and that was, that was the expectation. That's what she do. Yeah. You know, and it's funny. I mean, when so many things flash back, like how the one who was more edgier, the bad boy, like that was the man's man. Mm-hmm. And I know that <laughs> my father once brought home somebody who, you know, in hindsight, you know what, I want to introduce my dog to, 
but you know he was a man <laughs> man uh, and no. that was okay and you know that 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 whole time period that so many of us have gone through with these expectations well okay this is a man's man and like even you talked about how he gave you the promise ring you were a little disappointed mm-hmm. but then you know later on came the engagement ring you know and then it was you know like so like okay these are the steps that you're supposed to do you know did you see and i'll tell you i say knock on wood especially after, you know, marriage equality, someone said to me, you didn't dream of having a, a wedding with a big white dress? And fortunately, I had aunts who were from a couple of who never married, who were teachers and stuff. So there was a role for me to see a role mm-hmm. model that would break that mold. But did right. you, was there anybody, like, if you had said, you know, well, I'm not thinking about marriage. You know, I'd like to really pursue a career. Was anyone who you had as a role model or who was in your family who had your back? You know, not overtly. Like, I wouldn't have pointed to it, um, like, prior to me choosing the path that I did. But I will say, well, well, first I want to say, you know, about, you know, like there was the promise ring and then there was the engagement ring, which I talk about in the book, how, you know, there's so much, it's so romanticized, right, this idea of, mm-hmm. like, being engaged. And at the time when, when, when he proposed to me, um, I was living with, you know, I was on the Disney College program, and I had five roommates, and one of them was engaged. And it was, like, this romanticized thing, like, you know, I want to be engaged kind of thing. Um, but yet when he proposed, there was this feeling of almost, like, I didn't have another option in that moment, only because it kind of felt like, well, I don't feel like I don't want, like, it felt like that was the next step, right? Like, that was the next logical step in the relationship. You know, you go to school, you get married, you have kids, not necessarily in that order. This is what I'm doing. Um, Of course, later, I would break off that engagement and choose, you know, a different path. And my grandmother on my mom's side, my mom's mom, although we never had a very, you know, a direct conversation about who I was dating or how I identified or any of that. She did say things that validated my kind of life path, if you will. Like um, uh-huh. I can remember having a cousin who, you know, we, we found out was pregnant and kind of unexpectedly, right, like surprise. And me being, you know, I kind of said, Better her than me is kind of you know, the, the, converse, the comment I had made in, uh, in, 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 the, in the conversation. I was like, oh, better her than me. And my grandma laughed at me and said, Jennifer, I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't blame mm-hmm. you one thing. And she, it's just she would say things that would validate, you know, who, who I felt like I was and, you know, whether or not she knew directly what she was validating. But I feel like she did. I feel like there was a part of her that knew um, both her and my grandpa eventually, um, because at some point I was in a relationship um, with a, another woman, and she would come around all the time. And again, I'd never, to this day, I've never really had a conversation with any of my extended family about who, you know, who she was to me or who, but she would come around and they would treat her just like they might treat anybody else's significant, you know, other boyfriend. Um, and there was a point where my grandfather was in the hospital, um, and I can't even remember what he was there for, but he was going in for a procedure. And so I got to go back to see him before he went in. And I had gone by myself initially because I didn't know if it would be okay to take her, right? Like, 
everybody kind of was cool, but we hadn't really talked about who she is. You know, it just felt weird. And so I went back to see him, and as I was on my way back out, my grandma said, you know, did you take Jen with you? And I was like, no. And she's like, oh, you should take Jen. So I, we went back. And as we were walking out of that space, my grandpa said to, to us, you take care of each other. Oh, and uh-huh. so it just felt like this, like, again, we'd never, never talked about it, never been real direct, but he, but he said it was almost, it, that to me felt like a validation, like I'm acknowledging, you know, the relationship the two of you have um, without having a whole conversation about it. And so, um, so, no, I would not say I had a role model per se that I identified to aspire to be like, but I do feel like I did get some validation, you know, from my grandparents eventually. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a parent, because I tell you, my mother was very accepting, you know. I mean, like, she had a minute because mm-hmm. after, you know, like, my father was like, you know, I did like you, okay, I'm a data guy. Here's another guy. Here's, are you happy? Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up with a child. My mother was like, but I was unhappy. These weren't, you know, mm-hmm. none of them were developing into relationships. I was happy. Actually, I was happy when I had a child, you know, but, but mm-hmm. none of these men were doing it. But my mother, after a while, recognized, you know, that I was happier in my community of women. And she started to, you know, dip her toe in, try to figure it out, you know, she came to, mm-hmm. well, you know, I don't know if you remember the Detroit Women's Coffee House. She came there, and she began to fall in love with my lesbian community. Oh. My father did not. <laughs> and sure. I know how you talked about how, you know, that uncomfortableness, you know, and how you sort of kept that on the, the quiet part, and then he died. And I know that mm-hmm. I did that. Um, where was your mother in, in this, and... Did she sort of like defer to his not accepting you being having a relationship, whether bisexual or lesbian, but with anything other than a man? So, you know, I kind of share in the in the, in the book about how it happened, like initially, right when it first came out. My dad mm-hmm. confronted me about it, and then you know, months later, I shared with my mom. Uh, kind of, it was kind of a forced situation where I kind of didn't really have a choice. It was time to, to, to bring my mom into the loop. Um, and, you know, at that point, it felt to me very much like that. Like my mom didn't try to, I feel like she asked some questions to try to understand better than where my dad didn't, my dad wasn't interested in having any kind of conversation trying to understand it at all, right? Uh, <laughs> but my, my mom did, I feel like, you know, she asked me some things. It felt like she was at least trying to get her mind around it. Um, but ultimately in that moment, you know, like, like your mom, maybe, like she wasn't in a place to try <laughs> to really, it felt to me like she wasn't going to contradict him. It felt like, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was kind of the thing she was going to hold the line. And, you know, we, like, I guess maybe like a lot of families, we have not always been great in the communication department, especially about conflict. Um, and so, you know, my mom and I didn't talk about it for, for years because it was a very, it was very shortly after that that my, you know, with my dad was gone within a year after I told her. Um, and... You know, we just, we never really had conversation about it um, until many years later. And my mom then shared with me that, you know, she had said to my dad at some point, you know, she's your daughter. You've got to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I didn't know that in the time. 
So at the time, it felt like my dad had completely rejected me and my mom wasn't going to contradict him. So it felt like I'd lost both of them in terms of their support. Um, now, my mom, though, has always been very, um, you know, she's always been very supportive in terms of, like, she's always welcomed, you know, my girlfriends or my partners over my life. Um, you know, like I said, I would, I would, if I was dating someone at school, they would come home with me and, you know, she'd send cookies back. Sometimes, you know, if I came home without them, you know, it was, it was, it was very, again, we didn't really have direct conversation about how she felt about it, but she treated my partner like she would treat a, a, a boyfriend. So mm-hmm. um, I've always been grateful for that because even though we weren't necessarily comfortable talking about how we were feeling about things, she never made it hard. Um, you know, especially after we lost my dad, I think that, you know, I can remember one conversation with her where, you know, after having lost my dad, when she kind of said, you know, life is too short to make it an issue, you know, to make that the thing that comes between us. Uh, my dad was 38 mm-hmm. when he passed away. And, um, you know, I, I know I did not expect to lose him when we did. And so I think it just really kind of puts some things into perspective for my mom in terms of, you know, what's really important. Um, and so, so, yeah, it's unfortunate yeah. in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know, my mother died before my father, but, you know, we had conversations. And, like, and, and at one point, country said where that I was fortunate to live in an age to where you could explore, there were these options. She saw my friends getting married. She saw my lesbian friends having children. And, like, she was like, you know what, that wasn't even there. And it was like Mm -hmm. she said, you know, you got married and you had kids and you might have a horrible marriage and not be happy with it, you know, but the thought of, of going over the line and exploring sexuality and gender identity that just wasn't there yeah yeah and so you know you've gone through a lot as you look at where you were and where things are now (laughs) you know I mean it is I mean you see you see all of these things um okay I got a couple things do you see does it ever you went back and forth. Okay, so then did you, to, to try and, def- and this sort of gets to, to us getting too clear, to define yourself so it was like, oh, well, you were not with men and you were engaged to one, so you were straight. Oh, well, then you like women, so you are lesbian. Oh, well, maybe you've been out with both. Are you bi-? Did you ever feel that in coming to queer, that pressure to define yourself one way or the other. I know at one point in the, in the book you talked about how you sort of like picked uh, to be on the femme spectrum, you know. And, and we right. have that too. You've got to be femme, you got to be butch, you got to be, you know. <laughs> right. Did, was um, all those things like going in your mind and coming to queer? Absolutely, absolutely. Especially, um, you know, early on when I first met the first woman I was in a relationship with. I didn't really know what this meant for me, right? Like I knew that I had been with men. I like I like men. It didn't mean that I didn't like men, but I had never been with a woman before. And now I was in this relationship that felt so much deeper to me. Like it was certainly a more of an emotional connection 
first and foremost than anything else as far as intimacy um, and remembering, you know, and, and feeling like I can't, I can't, this isn't allowed, this isn't okay. Um, and, and immediately questioning it, questioning it. Like I remember vividly, and I think I, I talk about this in the book too, I tell the story about how we're driving in the car, how, you know, she comes out to me as bisexual and I get really uncomfortable about it and there's this whole thing. But then I start thinking to myself, like what, what, what is so wrong with feeling the way that I feel about her, right? Like it just, how can something that feels so innately right be wrong? But I also knew that that's how it would be with my family. And... Um, and so, of course, I felt like I had to figure it out. And so early on, I felt like I kind of went with bisexual because it was the only term I knew at the time that didn't rule out one or the other because I wasn't really sure. I didn't know. I, I knew that I really loved her, and I also knew that I the relationship I had been in before, like, although they weren't necessarily as fulfilling intimately and they, they kind of felt like I was just kind of going through the motions of what I'm supposed to do. I just, I wasn't ready to say I'm a lesbian because I didn't know. And I also felt like on some level, my parents could swallow bisexual a little bit easier than me saying I'm a lesbian and I'm never going to be with a man. Right. And so that was part of my very early journey. And then, you know, my relationship pattern was, very bisexual, as it turned out. Like, I, I dated a woman, and then I did, you know, I, I initially only dated men, and then I dated a woman, and then I dated a man, mostly because of the pressure I felt like meeting my dad's, you know, expectations for me, and then I dated another woman. <laughs> so I kind of went back and forth. Um, and ultimately, what I came to, you know, for years, for probably 10 or 11 years, I identified as a lesbian because eventually there was, there was one, one guy that I was with. And after that, I was like, that's it. I'm never doing it again. <laughs> like, he was mm-hmm. like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm done with men. Um, and I dated women for probably 10, 11 years or so. Um, and so Ethan and I reconnected. And, you know, of course, I share in the story that he's transgender and you know, I remember joking with him about, you know, at the time I was in, I was the director of the LGBT Resource Center at the University of Georgia, and so I would go into classes and I would teach about gender and sexuality, and one of the first initial activities I would do is I would say, I would ask them, the class, to um, kind of anonymous, anonymously vote about how they think I identify in terms of my sexuality and what is the cue that makes them think that. So if you think I'm straight, what makes you think that? If you think I'm a lesbian, what makes you think that, what makes you think I et cetera. And we would do this activity, it was fascinating because I got some amazing, like, data and patterns that came out of that. But <laughs> when I started seeing Ethan, I said to him, you know, you're really messing with my activity here because I, <laughs> I don't know now how I identify. Um, and so, you know, eventually I came to queer uh, because it felt like a much broader term and it doesn't, you know, it's not so restrictive. And, you know, truly, I, I'm attracted to people. And I've learned that in my life, over my life. I'm attracted to people. It doesn't necessarily matter what's in their pants, so to speak. You know, it's, it's really about, you know, who you are as a person and our connection and, you know, kind of our higher selves. So for me, queer felt like the best fit and has continued to be how I identify um, which You're is not. funny because that's such a, for me, initially, that was a hard word because I, growing up, mm-hmm. you didn't call people queer, you know. Yeah. Although part of, you know, I mean, really, it's like if someone said someone was queer, they were talking about somebody who was gay. But, you know, mm-hmm. I know that 
I have, yeah, I know about how you talk because I know that I have had people like early on, and they were like, "Oh, you have a son, and how did you get him?" And I'm going like, "Well, you know, do you want to talk about the birds and the bees?" You know, and, and in fact, um, in fact, um, I don't know if you know Dr. Julie Nimichek, and um, she's a trans woman, and she and I, we had we were speaking together at a 4-H group, and. Uh, I mean, which was so funny. And they had asked her a question, and then they asked me, and one of the young people said, you know, well, how did you get your son? I'm going like, you know, you, yours are 4-H. I think you understand. <laughs> but it was suddenly, it was like my lesbian creds were, like, shaky. And it's like, no, you know, mm-hmm. and people who don't understand that. And I think that in part, and I love Julie, because Julie and her wife have been together, I would say, over 40 years. Wow. And in, in, in being with her and talking about it, it was sort of like they had that conversation. Okay, Julie said, I'm going to transition, you know, and her wife had to decide, well, first of all, people would say to her, so you're a lesbian now or, you know, yeah. or whatnot. And, you know, and, and to sort of come to and find that place, you know, then I think mm-hmm. that as we, we broaden and we have these conversations, and I'm going to tell you, I think that knowing and having many friends who I consider family who are in the transgender community to be able to talk about this helped me come to queer because mm-hmm. it's more than, you know, as Julie would say, what you have under the hood. <laughs> you know? yes. I mean, you know, it's, like, yes. it's, how, it's how you do it. In fact, um, I have met people who have, like, been sort of, like, struggling with one and then to be able to say that, you know, I recognize I'm somewhere on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. And queer is the word. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and I've known people who have said that they would never date anyone trans. And said, well, why? You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're seeing, you're in love with this person, this spirit, this person. Um, and unfortunately, even with the LGBTQ community, there are people who, there's transphobia. Mm-hmm. You know, not wanting to accept that we are all in this huge spectrum. Mm-hmm. And some Absolutely. people get angry about the word queer. Have you mm-hmm. found that? And in your work, when people say, you know, why do you have to be queer? You know, why can't you just say lesbian? Or you know, I had somebody say that. Why come you just can't say lesbian? Do you find that is there more acceptance of the term queer and getting us, us members of this community, away from what was assigned at birth to what your spirit is? I think, at least in my experience, of course, it's been, it's kind of varied, and it depends on, I think, the group that I'm speaking to. I certainly think that, you know, our, our, our younger people have just completely embraced that. I mean, it's like, just break all the things, right? Like, break all the labels. doesn't, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, people my age and, and maybe, you know, a little more mature than me tend to, have more of an issue with 
the word queer for the reasons I think that we talked about. Like when I was younger, that was not a, I, I have a vivid memory when I first started working in the LGBT Resource Center at Georgia. Um, in the first few months, I was in, the, in my office and there was kind of an area right outside that was like a lobby and then it went into like a, um, like a lounge area for students. And I was hearing the word queer and I, and I got panicked. Like what, what? I thought there was like trouble happening, you know? <laughs> Okay. And I remember going out, and it was the students, and they were they were talking about their own identities, and 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 it was it was such a learning curve for me, um, and so that's why to me it's kind of funny that now that's the word that I use to identify because there was a time when I couldn't even say it. So I think that you know in in some regards it is a little bit generational. Um, you know, I remember uh, also having an experience, and this has been several years ago because I, I left Georgia in 2013, so, um, but I was walking across. Uh, we were walking, or, or I think we must have had some kind of display on Tate Plaza, which is kind of like the center of campus where people walk through by the student union. And um, gosh, whatever, whatever the display was, we were, you know, there were signs either or something that said queer, and I remember... Um, you know, a couple of black students walking by and heard that word and kind of looked and were like, and they looked at each other. And I remember hearing one of them say to the other one, like, isn't that like the N word? <laughs> and so I think, you know, it, it, you know, to be fair, it was at some point. It was, it was one of them maybe, I don't know if it would have been, you know, if you consider it as offensive as the N word, but with, you know, as far as in community, like you, is that the word we use? Um, and so I think that it just, it really kind of depends on people's frame of reference, right? And, um but I do think that as we move and, you know, our younger people are really embracing that and kind of showing us the way in terms of, you know, breaking all the molds and, and embracing people for who they really are, you know, even like you said, in our spirit, right? And you see a lot of things about, you know, body positivity, right? And, and I love, I just finished listening to um, The Body is Not an Apology and um, just this idea of, embracing people um, for who they are in, in, in doing away with all of these kinds of the ways we think about people and their bodies. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do think it's kind of we're moving in the right direction for sure. Okay. Well, we're going to take our first break here. And if you're just joining us, I am talking with Jennifer Miracle Beth. She is, among other things, the author of Divinely Queer. And we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking to speaker, educator, author, spiritual speaker, Jennifer Miracle-Best. You know, um, 
last week I was talking with um, Deshana Neal, who has, I mean, I mean, it was like such an, uh, uh, a phenomenal uh, conversation because her daughter came out to her as, in fact, at three said, Mommy, I'm a girl. And, hmm. and she became Mama Bear, you know, and yeah. she has fought so much for her daughter. And this is her older daughter who's turning 18 now. And oh. she has a 10-year-old. And it has become such just a way that it is. Um, she had two things. Her, her 10-year-old came out only, she has four kids, only the second oldest knew her daughter Trinity before and after, you know. Mm-hmm. And her 10-year-old said, Mom, you know, I'm, I'm a girl. And she said, I wish I knew other trans kids who I could relate to. And all of a sudden, the country said, Darn, I've done a good job. You know, she said, right <laughs> over there, your sister, you know, go talk to her. You know, go talk wow. to her. Like, like she had done such a good job. And we talked about that, you know, how as a society, even, I mean, we are so caught up in these things, how we have like gender reveal parties, which are already putting yeah. the kid in the box before they even get here, you know. Yeah, yeah. Who expectations and stuff. In fact, she was, she was saying like, um, she referred to her youngest child as baby. And then when she got pregnant with the next one, she said, this is the baby. She said, no, I'm baby. And she said, no, I mean, actually, you know, yeah. but we put people, I mean, we, we haven't gotten past that. We're still mm-hmm. putting people sure. in a box. I am sometimes troubled by our community when I see people, when I see the big gay marriage, and it's like instead of embracing what's beautiful and wonderful about our love and our relationship, it's like, okay, you're doing a big gay traditional heterosexual marriage. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you have, this is your work, you know, part of what I was reading about you said that you have have a passion for helping people to understand the intricacies of sexual and gender identity. I think with some of us is so ingrained in us, we don't even realize when we're doing it. When I have Mm -hmm. two lesbians get married and one's going to take the other's name, I'm going to, you know, wait a minute. You know, (laughs) do you understand what that means? How, what are you, what do you see? How do we help? our community, and by helping our community, helping the community at large, understand the intricacies of sexual and gender identity? Oh, I mean, if I had the answer to that, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) We'd be be sitting there in Hawaii sipping my Yes, we would be having this conversation like with Oprah or something, right? You Mm -hmm. and I. um, Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great, it's a very great question because it's kind of like, it makes me think of the, you know, the whole concept of like when you can't see the water because you're swimming in it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, you know, people were still, I, I have actually seen trans people do gender reveal parties, which blows my mind. I, I, I can't, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, wait, what? You know? So, um, <laughs> so I, you know, and teach their own, like I, I'm big on, you know, one of my biggest things is about like staying in your lane, right? Like, 
you know, if, if it don't bother me, if it's not, if it's not impacting me directly, you know, I'm going to kind of let you do you, but, but I still might kind of be a little perplexed about it. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's one of those things that is so, like you said, it's, it's so ingrained in us from even before we get here that it's, it, I think part of the answer, again, like if I said if I had the answer, I'd be a rich woman, but I do think that a big part of making progress is continuing to have difficult, not even difficult conversations, although sometimes they do end up being difficult, but like having conversations. And unfortunately, I feel like I know personally, even as someone who considers myself an educator, who loves having these kinds of dialogues, who, you know, that was my favorite part of my job when I was at Georgia was going into the classroom and making people think about things like this. I feel like, especially right now, we live in such a world where we are so divided that, um, you know, I just listened to a talk, uh, it was a conversation between Brene Brown and um, President Barack Obama, and she was talking about the being able to hold the tension of two kind of conflicting things. And he, he said something that I was like, yeah, that's exactly where we're at. He said, you know, unfortunately, we kind of live in a world where people have, people are certain that they, you know, know the answer to something like like they're absolutely certain about their opinion about something and if you think differently than them then you're an incorrigible person who can't you know doesn't understand anything at all <laughs> and that's kind of like i'm like yes that that feels like the world we're in right now it's 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 hard to have conversations because people don't want you know people have have this idea that they know they know what's right and if you think differently then you're crazy, you're stupid, you're, you know, a fool, you're whatever. <laughs> um, and so to me, that's the challenge is how, how, how do we get back to a place where we can at least hear each other and we can at least find a common place to have some conversation and be able to, you know, agree to disagree. Um, I've always felt like in order to in order to really disagree with someone, I have to really understand where they're coming from in the first place, right? If I don't hear you, I don't give you an opportunity to explain yourself and kind of your, your perspective, then how can I say you're wrong or I, I disagree with you? Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like we are in a space right now where it feels safe to have conversations. Um, yeah. And I don't but know how you know we get back to that. But there's things to me amazingly wonderful things that are happening which help you think because I know um, I have friends who are in Chicago and I've got friends here too to where they are the husband or husband or boo they use all different terms (laughs) has been the birth parent and Mm -hmm. I hear, and you know, and I've talked to like one of my friends who, the one who's in Chicago, who happens to be a trans woman, and you know, and she's like, I'm this child's mother, and she's getting people go like, oh no, you know, and they're trying to put them in the box and doing all that. Mm-hmm. But when you stop and you look at the beauty of it, okay, the love and what is parenting, yeah. and it expands that whole way of thinking about parenting and love and what people can give, I mean, 
this really is like the future, and if we're not thinking about it for maybe I can't totally wrap my head around it, but you know what? There's other generations that are coming afterwards, mm-hmm. and this is going to be their lives. So mm-hmm. sooner or later, we have to be able to have these conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, mean, just, I, I, I completely I mean, agree just, with you. <laughs> yeah. And I think you know, that, you know, you're right that part of it is living your life, right? Like in living our lives and living authentically, it forces those mm-hmm. conversations, right? It mm-hmm. forces people to, you know, maybe uncomfortable conversations, but that's how we learn and that is how we grow, right, is, yeah. is being around people who are different than us. Mm-hmm. You know, and you wonder because I can recall I had some friends who had, they were a lesbian couple and they had a daughter. And when she went to school, you know, um, a kid went like, you know, like, well, you can't have two moms. You have to have a dad for sperm. Mm-hmm. And she turned around and said to him, well, you know, you can buy that. I love it. I love it. It changed the whole yeah. conversation. And it brought up a thing in that school to where her parents, her moms are going there and doing all that. And I'm wondering what these amazing kids are going to be saying, yeah. you know, like, like when this little boy gets into school and people are going like, well, oh, no, you know, who was who the birth parent? And I know, a, I know several couples who are like that. And how will that change the conversation? You know, and sometimes, like, this is how children lead, and mm-hmm. I think that some of our kids are going to lead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. especially if they're, they're able to live their authentic selves and they're being raised in families that, like, this is just our family, this is how it works. You know, we learn how to, you know, as young people, I feel like as children, like you said, they do lead because there's nothing like the truth from a child, right, because they just see things so much more purely than we do as adults who have – been, you know, kind of socialized to avoid things or to, like, fit into these molds that, you know, the world has for us. So I think you're absolutely right that our young people are going to leave that. From all of your experiences, what made you decide to go from, you know, the safety of the university? <laughs> to go, I mean, I've seen videos of you here. You're 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 out. You're talking. You're talking about this. Um, I know that sometimes it's a receptive audience. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you have to go into it. What made you feel that you know? I have to. I've lived it. I've seen it. I'm experiencing it. I'm thinking it. Now I need to go out and put on that educator hat and work Mm. with the community and how do you target where you're going to, where you were going to start? Yeah. Well, I want to start by the answer to that question by kind of how I started doing this work in the first place, which was, you know, I really just kind of, um, I was influenced by a student years and years and years ago when I first got my first job um, at CMU and was working in university recreation. I worked with a student who at the time identified as gay um, and who had started working in the Office of Gay and Lesbian Programs, is what it was called at the time, and invited me to be a part of speaker panels, which was basically going into the classroom and telling the coming out story um, 
to a classroom full of people. And initially I was like, eh, not really sure I'm interested in doing that, thanks. <laughs> um, but they really encouraged me to just come to the training, and I did. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll give this a try. And it only took a few panels for me to be hooked. Like I, I, there was something about being able to step into my story and be my authentic self and you know, you're right. In some cases, especially then, that was early 2000s. You know, you, the 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 you know people in the audience were not necessarily always so receptive. But it was, but there was always somebody in the audience that seemed that they were receptive. And so it was like just to see that light go on for someone, to see them think about something differently than they ever had before, that caused like fire in me like the, I, I loved it I loved the opportunity mm-hmm. to get in front of people and to give people the opportunity to ask whatever questions they have because they just didn't know what they didn't know and that eventually led to um, you know a few years later we had our first out trans student coming to the university and so they did an in-service that I was able to be involved in because of my involvement with that office and that was really a turning point for me um, they brought the director at the time from Michigan State University's LGBT Resource Center and and uh, he did a presentation and brought some trans-identifying students with him, and they, you know, shared their story. And it just, like, I couldn't stop, like, talking about it. When I came home from work that day, I remember my girlfriend at the time, and I was telling her all about it, and I, you know, even got really emotional about it. And she was like, are you going to cry? And I'm like, I just felt, like, so fired up about it. I was like, somebody's uh-huh. got to do this work. You know, it was just like, I was so, I don't know, it was just, it just felt called, right? It felt called to do this work. And so I had gone to that person after they were, you know, at the end of the insert and said, I want to do what you do. I have a bachelor's. I'm sure I need a master's. I don't know what, what, like, what do I need to do? And he told me, and I started my master's the next semester and did my master's while I was working at CMU with the goal of I'm going to be a director of an LGBT resource center. That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I ended up at Georgia. Um, and I loved that job. I mean, that was my absolute dream job. Um, I was there for five years. And really, one of the only things that, like, kind of tempted me to leave was the fact that I fell in love. <laughs> and he was not in Georgia. He was back in Michigan. And, um, you know, we discussed the possibility of him moving to Georgia, but based on his work that was, like, making the stars align. And so there were lots of things that it took me a while, probably a good year and a half or so to get my mind right about the prospect of coming back to Michigan. Um, and ultimately, that's what I did. And I, when I left Georgia, kind of getting to your question about, you know, deciding to leave academia, you know, I loved going into the classroom and facilitating training. I loved having conversations with students. Same th- the same thing that started me years ago, like the thing that turned me on about the work was still the thing that I loved to do. Um, and I had been told by people, you know, you could, you could totally do this. And I knew that I paid speakers to come to campus. And I, you know, I know that mm-hmm. there are people who make a living doing it, you know, it's, it's not. And so I thought, God, it would be great if I could just, that was the thing that was my favorite part of my job anyway. So, you know, why not make that my thing? Um, and so that is kind of how I decided to leave is it was, kind of a combination of, you know, I needed to figure out how, how could we get in the same place? You know, how could even I get in the same place? Um, okay. But also me still continue to do the work that I love. And so that, that was really kind of how I made the decision. And what's funny is that when I left Georgia, I had an intention to write a book, but it wasn't this book. Um, you know, my goal was 
to be able to continue to do this work educating people about the, you know, the intricacies of gender and sexual identity. And I was going to write a book that was called LGBTQ LMNLP um, and just kind of like break down, you know, all of that. And who knows, I might still write that book. I don't know. But, um, but I kind of got sidetracked and eventually found, came across this book coach um, that had like a one week kind of uh, kickstart your summer and your book webinar seminar thing that she did um and that's really kind of what got me to writing this book and I didn't even know this book was in me right like I just it's kind of crazy so the the activities that she gave you you know were kind of thinking about like what is it that you want the world to know like what is what is the thing that you have experienced that you want the world to know and for me it was I'd had all of these experiences with the divine that years ago, I never would have ever thought I would have had because of, you know, my dad said, like, all these things, you know, the things that most of us hear about religion when mm-hmm. they come out, you're going to hell, you know, God doesn't love you, all these things. And so I have since come to, in my life experience, I've since come to understand, and it was a long journey, but I came to understand that had my dad not said those things to me, I don't know if I would have been on the same spiritual path that I've been on. It was almost like it caused me to say, you know, well, why can't I have that? And is he right? Mm -hmm. Is that really true? God doesn't love me. Um, And so that's where this book came from is I I knew that that was once I knew that that was crap, (laughs) I wanted everyone else to know that because for so many years, I wanted something. I felt like there's, there's, there's got to be something bigger than me, but I didn't feel like it was God because God didn't love me. And once I started having these experiences that I could only explain as God or the divine or the universe, like something larger than me, I wanted for people who felt like I felt to know that it's accessible to them, that, you know, no one can separate you from that no matter what people tell you, no matter what they say, that is something that cannot be taken from you. And I just want for people to know that, you know, not that you have to want that. You know, I I believe that, you know, there are some people who don't believe in God at all and that's okay. But I also know that there are lots of people like me who felt like I just need something. I need to know that there's something larger than me, something bigger than me. And once I knew it, I needed to tell other people, this is here for you. This, that's here for you. And don't ever let anybody tell you that that's not yours to have. And so that's what I kind of decided to do with this book and, um, and still continuing to work on, like, building my message and figuring out the best place to talk about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, college students seem to make the most sense because, uh, you know, I'm talking about sexuality and spirituality, which are two things most people don't want you talking to, you know, high school kids about. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's kind of been, um, that's kind of been the journey that I've been on um, and how I got here. Well, you know, I think that one of the things about your book, I mean, and the fact that you're telling your story, like, I mean, you know, there are, were so many things and instances that were relatable. Like, you know, we come from very different backgrounds, you know, um, we come from the same geographic area in Michigan, but I was born on, I raised on the east side of Detroit, you know. I'm mm-hmm. African-American, you're not, yeah. But there were so many 
things that were so relatable that, and not only to me as growing up, but in stories and interactions I've had with other members of our community that you've heard, that we've gone through, that, that doubt. And early in the book, and I want to say that it was like in um, one of the first chapters how you were, you were just like so conflicted, and you prayed, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then you still continued, and I think that that's the thing that, to me, you still went through all these ups and downs. You lost your father, you know, while he was still going to, and you had you heard these things, and so, which many of us have heard, you know, mm-hmm. you know that God doesn't love you. You're a sin. You're an abomination. You know, mm-hmm. I know. I was at something once, and I I mentioned something because I went to Catholic school, and I mentioned something that I recall from that, and the uh, minister said, you know, well, even Satan can read the Bible, and I'm like, okay, fine. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's like, but, and I'll tell you, and in going through all of the things that that you talked about, and just how we talked about how you came to queer, in coming to queer, for me, it put me in touch with the universe, that I am part of everything. You know, if you look at a tree, Mm -hmm. a tree isn't just this green thing here, it's like, it's part of this whole ecosystem. And mm-hmm. queer did that for me, finding that place, the place that, to me, which, which is interesting about you, is like, I understand divine. I, I think that I'm in touch with part of the divine. But you are able to go back and talk to people who have a spirituality Sometimes I hear what people say they did to, they heard from a church and what they were told. I wouldn't go into another church, and, you know, I certainly wouldn't try and start a gay church. In fact, at one point you talked about, um, was it um, was it Greater Hope? It was an MCC church, and it was like oh, a gay church, yeah. okay? Our, you know, our, our hope. hope. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, our hope. You know, it's like it's a gay church. Did you ever have a moment after having had, quote-unquote, church, you know, throw spears and arrows at you that you were, what made it where you were able to go back in and talk about spirituality where so many in our community have run screaming from and never looked back, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think some of it was the desire of connecting with that. I had heard about Metropolitan Community Church years ago, back when I was still in Mount Pleasant. But the closest one at the time was in Midland. And so that was like 30 minutes away. And because I'd already had a negative enough experience with religion, I wasn't interested in trying to get up early to get to church. On the, like I was just not trying to have that experience. <laughs> but because, you know, I, like how do I know that it's going to be any better, right? Like I just I, I wasn't invested enough to do that. So when I moved to Georgia, when I, when I got the job at Georgia, um, once I accepted the job, my um, direct supervisor sent out a message because they'd been looking to fill this position for a couple of months when I, when I accepted it. Um, and when she sent out the message that I had accepted the job, one of the very first, it might have been the first message I got, an email I got, was from the pastor at Our Hope um, and Metropolitan Community Church. And I remember getting that email and 
and feeling like giddy. Like I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm going to find a church. Like, because it was right there in Athens. And, you know, she was welcoming me to the community and I'm so excited to meet you and I hope you'll come and visit, you know. And so literally I, I had been looking, I had been searching for that kind of connection. I had tried to go to a couple of churches in Mount Pleasant, but just didn't, you know, again, I tell some of those stories, the whole Fred Phelps thing. <laughs> um, but um, I just hadn't found I just hadn't found it. It didn't feel right. And uh, when I went to Our Hope, it really created a space. Like there was a space there for me to just explore this opportunity to connect with spirit. And um, and, and in that way, it was a blessing. And so because if I had gone and had any kind of negative experience or even just kind of like, meh, it felt like, you know, just some other church, but it was like going into this church and seeing a congregation that was almost completely queer or lesbian or gay or, you know, obviously didn't, everybody didn't identify as queer, but like to see couples you know, same-sex couples in church together. It was just, it was a totally different experience. It just, it just changed the whole experience for me. And it allowed me to feel safe to be myself and to connect with spirit. Whereas, you know, my previous experience, like I, I vividly remember going to when my grandfather passed away. Um, and this was probably sometime between the, my first relationship with a woman, it was after my dad had passed away, a few years after my dad had passed away. Um, and, and, you know, it was a Southern Baptist church in, in Tennessee. And, you know, the person who preached his funeral preached hellfire and brimstone. You know, it was, if you're not, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, you need to, you know, take, accept him as your Lord and Savior today. And I remember I was a mess, but it was all because of how I, I, I remember sitting there and feeling like if these people knew who I, who I am, like, I wouldn't be welcome here. And that was my experience at church prior to going to Our Hope. And so when I walked into Our Hope and it was like, you know, just people like me everywhere, it was such a different experience. I can't even really articulate it. Um, but it created a safe space for me to, I didn't have to be preoccupied with what people were going to think about who I am. I was able to be present in the moment and connect with God, which is, I think, what church is supposed to be for. Um, and so it just really changed it for me. And, it, and, I, and I was able to, you know, connect with the people there. You know, I tell a story about learning to pray because I think to that point I it kind of felt like I didn't really know what praying really was supposed to be like, you know, like what do you say? Is there a ceremonial thing? You know, again, I'm a rule follower. Like how uh-huh. do I do this? Um, and, you know, during their communion, you, you know, go up and you, you take communion every Sunday. You can take communion every Sunday, and they pray with you if you want. And that was just an incredibly powerful experience for me. Um, and so I, I was fortunate because I feel like I was able to experience what church to me feels like it should be. Like I, I feel like church should not feel like you show up, you go through the, mo- you know, you sing a song, you read the scripture, you do the message, you, you, and then you go home. Like, like I, for me, I crave an experience that feels like I feel the spirit. Um, and I don't feel like 
you necessarily always get that. And you don't necessarily get it all, you know, at every, you know, even at Our Hope, I didn't necessarily get it every single Sunday. But for me, that was a very, um, like, integral part of my, my spiritual journey was being a member um, or, you know, being a part of the congregation at Our Hope. Yeah, and it's almost like, and, and part of what I like about when you talk about on record that I am divinely queer and so are you. And many in our community, because of these things, have have lost that. And you t- just talked about how you learn to pray, where we've grown up in like, you know, this up and down, up and down. I've often heard people who say they prayed every day that that they would be changed, you know. Mm-hmm. And... And some who even after they've accepted that they are LGBTQ still have that, you know, if I could have prayed my way to, to live a different life, you know, mm-hmm. I've been happy. Do you, or, or they'll say, do you think I wanted this life, you know, if right. I could have made a choice. But in accepting the divine, you're also accepting, like, you know, for a lack of, to use the word, that you are, in fact, created in the image and likeness of God, and that image mm-hmm. and likeness is everything and everyone. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you found, your, you found a, a, your church home at Our Hope. When was the first time you, you, you spoke about mm-hmm. your life, and when it there, and how was it received? Um, so honestly, I think the first time I really, the first and one of the only times so far that I've talked about, I think you're asking when was the first time I talked about kind of that intersection of spirituality and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So probably one of the very first times that we're like, that was the talk uh, was my book launch. And mm-hmm. I will tell you, Michelle, I was I, not of the book launch, but when I was writing this book, I did not want to write this book. <laughs> like I found myself scared, very, very scared, because it felt like I had to tell the story. Like I, I felt called to write this book, and I didn't want to write this book, because I knew that this was not going to be an easy thing to talk to people about. I knew that there were going to be people who, <clears throat> on one hand, identify themselves as Christian, are going to tell me I'm wrong. I'm wrong about what the Bible says. I'm still going to hell. <laughs> you know, you've got it wrong, mm-hmm. right? I, 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 there's those people. And on the flip side, I felt like I had people who would identify as LGBTQ and who would also tell me I'm wrong. Like, you've sold out, the, you know, Christian. Like, it felt like... I felt really, I felt terrified about it. I remember talking to the pastor one day and, and, you know, getting those tears of like, I, like, I know I'm supposed to be talking about this, but I really don't want to, I don't want to do this. And so, um, so, so the first talk, you know, if you will, where I, where I really kind of 
went out, it was my book launch, which was held. Um, the, the, I did two big ones. One was at Clawson, um, in Clawson at the at our um, I'm sorry Metropolitan Community Church of Detroit, which is the church that I attended for many years. Um, and uh-huh. we did a we did a book launch there, and then we also did um, a book launch at Affirmation uh, uh-huh. a couple of months later. And um, and it was it was great. It was really very well received. Now, in in both of those situations, you know, I kind of had audiences that were like intrigued to talk about it, right? So it wasn't necessarily like I wasn't on a college campus where I could just have anybody, you know, come in who might you know oppose necessarily. But I did have some amazing questions about you know um, about religion and about the way that I was raised and and what I believed about God. And um, and so it was it, it was it was a really really great experience. Um, now, I still struggle with feeling a little bit um, like unequipped, in- if that's the word I want to use about uh-huh. um, you know having talks that might be open to just anybody. Um, I remember having an experience when I was finishing the book. Um, we had gone for New Year's Eve not New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve service. I love a midnight, like a midnight mass Christmas Eve kind of service. And this particular Christmas, it was, the, the weather was bad. And so our church had canceled their um, Christmas Eve service. And we went to a, a local, kind of a mega church, church around here that did a, a Christmas Eve service. And um, it was incredible. I mean, the, you know, it, it meets in one of those, like the building they meet in used to be like a furniture store or something. So it was this huge, you know, church. And it, it felt like you were walking into a concert, right? And they started with like Little Drummer Boy and he had a, a, a you know, a snare drum and he just like hit that snare drum and it's just like your whole heart just opened up. And I, I had my validation tears, you know, like through the whole service. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. It's incredible. And then as we were leaving, after we had this amazing Christmas Eve service, right, we're leaving and there was a, um, like a kiosk or whatever, and there was a, a pamphlet on it that was from Focus on the Family. And I went from being just like mm. totally emotionally moved to like emotionally angry. Like I was so, oh, it was like from one emotion to the other. Like I was so angry because I had heard some things about that particular church and, you know, what they believe. And, in fact, my cousin came up in that church and ended up leaving that church because he came out. And so, man, it was just – and I remember talking all the way home with Ethan about it and feeling like I was so angry because it feels so – it felt so deceptive, right? Like, because the experience they're giving you is this amazing musical, like – connection, right? Like you felt like, again, like my whole heart opened up. And then the theology that they're teaching based, I'm I'm presuming based on the, you know, the pamphlet from Focus on the Family is that, you know, you're going to hell if you're anything other than Uh great white, you know. And so, you know, we had this whole conversation and I said, I just feel like even though I've had these experiences with the divine, I have never really read the Bible from start to finish, right? Like I, I know a lot of scripture because of the work that I do and the different, you know, kind of clobber passage, passages, as they call them, that are used frequently against the LGBT community. Uh-huh. Like as far as, you know, I am not a theologian. I am not, I have not studied scripture. I have not, you know, and, and, and to be quite frank, I, I don't have a lot of desire to do so. I, I, I like to study the things 
so that I can engage with people and respond. But as far as, like, like that's not my way of connecting with God. I'm, I'm not one that sits down and reads a daily devotional or anything like that. But what I... But what I do want to speak to, what I can speak to, is my experience with God. And so I find myself a little bit conflicted because I fear being in a situation where um, somebody who identifies themselves as a Christian wants to, you know, debate with me or argue, you know, scripture with me and tell me that I'm wrong and, you know, I'm going to hell or whatever, and not feeling equipped to to, uh, you know, discuss scripture with them. Ultimately, what I know is it doesn't really matter to me what you, what your book, what you, what, what you interpret your book to say, because regardless of what the Bible or any other religious book says, what I know is my experience with God. And that has been my experience. And nothing you can tell me is going to change the experience that I've had with spirit. Um, and so for me, it's about trying to find my like standing squarely in that and feeling like in the event that I have someone who wants to, you know, kind of challenge me with scripture that I can respond with that and say, you know, it's, it's okay that, that that's how you, you know, that's your interpretation of scripture. And, and I'm not, I'm not here to argue that what I'm here to share is my experience with the divine and what I have, you know, to me, there's a difference between, like, learning something and reading about something and, and actually experiencing something. And what I'm here to talk about is my experience with it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take our second break here. And um, if you're just joining me, I'm talking with Jennifer Miracle Beth. And we're going to talk about being divinely queer. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And I'm talking with Jennifer Miracle Beth. Okay. To me, and, and you know, I have a, a concept of divinely. And I believe I am divinely queer. I think that, you know, but I often know, and even, you know, when you go into our communities, when you go into churches, even if you're gay churches, that, you know, people want to put you into, I mean, there's still a strong leaning on Christian, Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can find solace in Buddhism and some things in Christianity and all of these things. How do you, when you go in and you, and you say, you know, I'm divinely queer and so are you, and how do you help people 
reconcile that, you know, there's no one way. I don't care what they say. There's no one way, you know. I mean, but, mm-hmm. but, but being divinely and seeing the divine as being part of being one with the universe and some things. I mean, I also saw that you talked about Abraham Hicks, which is for another discussion. <laughs> another great. <discussion. laughs> but but um, how do you help people reconcile all these things? You know, I mean, like if you go into, it's supposed to be a church, our church, but, you know, there's still, you know, certain Christian tenants that are coming. And, but there are other things that come from all about the universe. How do you get people to see themselves or move the conversation from being that in order to be divine, you have to be Christian, you know, or to be this and mm-hmm. that, but to see yourself as divine? And how do you define being divinely queer? Mm-hmm. Um, well, if it's okay, I'm going to start with the second question because I feel like that, <laughs> that is a good place to start. And then we can move to how to help people kind of see it that way too. So to me, um, as I was mentioning earlier, I first kind of started coming to this when I realized that the terrible things that my dad said to me early in my life is kind of what led me to this connection with spirit. Like, had he not said those things, kind of thrown down the gauntlet that, you know, you can't have this, God doesn't love you, you're going to hell, et cetera, I don't know that it would have been something that I was so, um, you know, kind of compelled to try to pursue, I guess. And so for me, that brought this realization of, you know, so it's been kind of, there's these combinations of things. And again, in the, in the book, I tell the story about uh, validation tears, a high first kind of um, discovered that for me, validation tears are when I hear something that I know, like to my core is the truth, I will sometimes get emotional. I'll feel tears well up in my eyes or my brain looks full on tears. Um, and I first experienced that at this church during a Christmas, again, a Christmas kind of show. Mm-hmm. And they had a, uh, a CD that you could buy that was all of music. And I did. And at the end of that CD, there was kind of a hidden track that wasn't on the, you know, that wasn't on the list of the songs. And it had this incredible song that I can't, I can't remember it now. I can't remember even how it sounds, but I remember that the message of the song was that inside of you, like there's this, this thing that God has placed in you. And I'm sure there is scripture somewhere that it's referencing, but again, I'm not a theologian, so I'm not super familiar uh-huh. with the scripture, but this idea that there is something that God has put in you that can never be separated from you. It kind of made me think of like a homing device, right? And it's the thing that calls you back to God, that kind of connects you back to spirit. And I realized that between these two things, between this realization that my dad's, you know, rejection of me is what caused me to kind of go on this spiritual journey, and then this idea that there's some sort of something that my creator has planted in me to kind of call me home, I realized that being queer is part of that, that, you know, our creator, whatever you call that, whether you call it God, source, universe, whatever, has created us in 
its image, right? Like it's we're we are all part of the same thing. And so for me, that was the realization is that if I had not been queer, I would not have had the experience that I had with my dad, which led me on this journey to connect with God. And so in my mind, it can be no other way, right? Like this is the way I was created. This is, you know, of course we all have free will, but like it feels like free will to, to love the person that I love, regardless of what anybody else thinks about it. And so that for me is kind of how I came to this idea that I am divinely queer. And so when I say I am divinely queer and so are you, what I'm talking about is, you know, not necessarily how you identify in terms of your sexual orientation or sexual identity or gender identity, but that we all are kind of divinely queer or divinely different in our own way. And whatever way that we feel different, whatever way we feel makes us unworthy or unable to connect with God, that is divine. It's part of us. It's part of our journey. It's part of our, what we're here to do, right, what we're here to figure out. So, you know, I'm not sure I've ever met a person who probably has not experienced this feeling of unworthiness in terms of their relationship with God, right? I mean, Christianity, in my experience, teaches it. You're unworthy. Mm-hmm. We're all sinners. We're all, right? Like, nobody's worthy of God's love. Like, you know, we all, we, we need to repent. We have, like, like that's, that's the thing we're taught. And so my message is that whatever's causing us to feel that separation or that unworthiness, like that disconnect from God, is, it's not, it's not there to connect you to God, from God. I mean, to, it's not there to disconnect you from God. Like, we are all divinely exactly who we're supposed to be. And we're, we're going through whatever experiences that we're supposed to have in this time around, um, you know, to figure out who we are, to figure out what life is about, to figure, like, to, to whatever we came for. Um, and so that was really, that's really the message. And, you know, my story is told through a queer lens because for me, that is the thing that called me back to God. It kind of set me apart and put me on this journey to call me back to spirit. Um, and so to the kind of first part of your question, which was, I think about how do you, um, you know, how do I have conversations with people to help them realize that there's not just one way to do it, right? Like Christianity is not the Mm -hmm. only way. Um, and for me, I guess one of my, my most effective approaches is I like to ask questions. I like to ask questions about what people believe, um, questions that might make them consider something different, consider why we believe the things that we believe. Where does that, you know, where does that idea come from for us? What evidence have we seen that supports that, right? And, and because for me, it's really about, I don't really believe that I can tell you and how different, how it's different. I can tell you my experience but I feel like we each have to kind of have our own experience and kind of be willing to engage in a conversation, right, where we consider other options. Um, And sometimes you're going to get people who just aren't willing to do that. I feel like there's a lot of us in the world right now (laughs) like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, if someone is willing to show up to a conversation and just have enough curiosity to, you know, engage in a dialogue, 
then for me, what seems really effective is when you can ask people questions, obviously not in a confrontational kind of way, like why do you think that? <laughs> that doesn't usually get people very far. But if you can find a way to ask questions that cause people to reflect on what it is they've said or what it is they think, because I think a lot of us just have, you know, been socialized in certain ways. It's kind of like you were talking about earlier about, you know, the ways in which we socialize people before they're even here about gender, right, and, and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And the things that we carry around with us, the recordings we carry with us that we don't even know we're carrying until somebody maybe repeats them back to us and then we're like, oh, huh, hadn't really thought about it like that. So for me, that's kind of my favorite way to engage people is to be able to, you know, engage in dialogue, pose a question, and give them the freedom to agree or disagree or to, you know, to engage or not. Um, because I think that no one likes to feel like something's being kind of pushed on them or, you know, forced on, on them. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're, we're coming to the end, but I've got one last question. Not only is your book about your pathway to reconnecting with spirituality, it's a book about love. You've had mm-hmm. a number of relationships. Mm-hmm. You're very honest about them, and you talk about how you're feeling and what led you to the ultimate love of your life, Ethan. Mm-hmm. If you were talking to young Jennifer, and mm-hmm. you know, and here people were saying, "This is your path. You go to school, you do this, you get married, and you and you have kids." What would you be be your advice to her about following her heart? Mm. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I would tell her now that you have everything you need inside of you, and you're going to have to break some of the some of people's rules and you're going to feel uncomfortable. Um, but if you follow what feels right in your heart, you can't be wrong. Mm. I think that would be it. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's love is love. Jennifer, thank mm-hmm. you so much. I mean, you shared so much. We'll have to talk another time about Abraham Hicks and the many other things that, <laughs> that we have. But I, you know, it's inspirational. I agree with you. If your father hadn't, it wouldn't have put you on this path. And I often tell people, sometimes it's the hard things that put you on the right path. And, mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. And, I mean, I thank you for your time. I thank you for your wisdom and being there to put it out there. For us to, like I said, I read so many things that I could relate to, and really sometimes I talk to people about it, and we go back and we're continuing this conversation. That's why you're here. That's what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Michelle. Thanks for having me, and thanks for um, continuing the conversation. That's really the reason that I wrote the book, is I wanted for other people to know that they're not alone and you're not crazy and um, you have everything you need inside of you. So thank you, thank you so much for having me on the show and, and for sharing my story. I want to thank my guest, speaker 
educator and author, Jennifer Miracle Best. Her time is divided between promoting her book, Divinely Queer, My Journey to Spirituality Through Sexuality, and spreading the message that despite the messages that our society perpetuates about God and religion, that our queerness is absolutely divine. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.